Today's episode of the Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. If you enjoy basketball, you need to check out the Ringer NBA Show, where every week the Ringer's Chris Vernon hosts an all-star cast of Ringer staffers, NBA players, front office personnel, and more to discuss all things happening in the association. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash the Ringer, or you can find it wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. So I have got some topical banter for you. <laughs> Hit me. It's sort of. Okay, so we both saw Rogue One last week. And sure did. Not wanting to spoil anything, a couple of characters appear briefly in the movie through the magic of the Tron Legacy style CGI, uh-huh. which allows actors to look younger or even in one case come back from the dead. So <laughs> yes. you could call it magic. I don't know whether it's dark magic or, or light magic. Yeah. It is uh, somewhat disturbing. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say some of them look like dark magic. Absolutely. He might come back, but he's changed that, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. So if we could apply this technology to baseball, which players from the past would you want to CGI dark magic back to life? So they come back as reincorporated beings so we can put them on the field and they can play baseball again. They're not just holograms, right. but they can actually run and hit and field and throw. And you can you can interpret this. I feel like there are three ways to interpret this. One, uh, to see how they'd fare against modern competition, which just seems, right. like, seems like a dick move to me, yeah, <laughs> unless that was what you you wanted to do in which case i think that's a great idea uh two just like to get the sense of the you had to be there uh-huh. and three to like experience the hoopla like i don't know that fernando valenzuela would be all that interesting to watch like if you had the entire universe of every baseball player ever to choose from but fernando mania would be cool to go back and live through having having yeah. not done that the first time but you can't cgi all of fernando mania back well, if can you, can, you? If, if you could cgi one of them you could cgi all of them if you, you know. <laughs> yes let's assume we're playing with disney money here <laughs> right so I am somewhat tempted by the bringing back just to see how much worse baseball players were then than they are now. And I don't know who the best person to bring back to do that would Baby be. Earth. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's the obvious pick, yeah. right? And and I'd be curious to see him just because you can't really get a sense of why Babe Ruth was good at baseball from watching old-timey footage. You wonder how he could have been the best hitter of all time. So I would like to see that with my own eyes, I think. So probably, yeah, you bring him back. You bring back someone like old Haas Radborn or something just to <laughs> see how many innings he can pitch against uh, modern hitters because I'm guessing not nearly as many. So yeah. that's and an perhaps, option. Perhaps see how he'd fare against modern drinking competition as well. <laughs> that too. I think maybe the best thing would be to bring back guys who never really got a chance but should have, like the best Negro Leaguers, for instance, you know, bring back Cool Papa Bell yeah. and see how fast he was, or Oscar Satchel Charleston, Page or was on my, Josh Gibson. Yeah, Satchel Page on my list, too. Of course, he got to pitch in the big leagues, but he was super old, and it'd be fun to bring back super old Satchel Page, too. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> have to be prime Satchel Page just to see how he got away with what he got away with, but also i think maybe pitchers whose careers got cut off early so you know if you could bring back like peak jr richard and peak herb score and guys who were on a path to greatness but got hurt and only had a year or two when they were at that level if you could bring them back and actually let them have full careers or just see how their stuff stacks up with other greats that would be pretty high on my list the name that um that popped into my mind immediately was mickey mantle because uh-huh. for I don't know why for some reason he's like the shorthand for me for great baseball player. Yeah. Like I think it's the baby boomers. I think they did it. Yeah, baby boomers. <laughs> I mean, but I mean the other thing is like growing up with uh as I did with Jimmy Rollins as my favorite player and Chipper Jones is my least favorite player. I've got a thing for switch hitters too. Uh-huh. You know, he sort of had that that magnetism. So, Mantle and we have Mike Trout though. Mike Trout basically is Mickey Mantle. Well, that's what I I don't know that Mike Trout's Mickey Mantle. I mean, he's he's just 
just as good, right? He's off to the same well, sort he's, of He's better start. than he's better than Mantle, even through the same age, yeah. Yeah. Better than anyone through the same age. Yeah. The other kind of guy I'd, I'd look for is like Jackie Robinson is uh-huh. like as someone who just plays the game in a way that we don't really that we don't really see now and it's hard to just appreciate through statistics. Like I feel like Jackie Robinson, in addition to being this monumental historical figure, is also the ultimate you had to be there and see him in person guy. And, yeah. you know, to watch him run the bases or, you know, the the way that he was very much a modern player in the the nineteen forties. I think that would be cool to watch. Mm-hmm. And the third class of player is guys who I grew up watching but didn't really appreciate at the time. Yeah. Like I was just gonna start naming a few of those yeah, guys. Yeah. Like, you know, I look back on on Greg Maddox and I watched Greg Maddox, you know, I saw him pitch like once every two weeks when when I was a little kid. I had no idea what I was looking at. So like mm-hmm. him or Tony Gwynn or Hideo Nomo, like those would be guys that I would I would like to, you know, with 20 odd years more of, of hindsight and expertise in baseball to really appreciate watching them work. Yeah. And there were some guys who I think when you and I were old enough to start appreciating baseball, they were still around, but they were not their young selves. Like guys like Ozzie Smith or yeah. Ricky Henderson or Tim, or Tim Raines. Raines. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, they were in their late thirties. They were kind of, you know, still productive in certain ways, but shadows of their former selves. I mean, I would have liked to see Ozzie Smith when he was at his peak at shortstop or Ricky when he was stealing triple digit bases or, you know, Reigns when he was great at everything. So, yeah, I remember those guys very differently from someone who saw them in their prime would. So someone like that. Yeah. Or even like Ken Griffey Jr. was the biggest star in the world when I was getting into baseball, but he played on the other side of the country from where I grew up and like his his prime sort of as we know it was over by the time I was in middle school. Right. Well, we got to see peak bonds, but I would like to go back and see peak bonds yeah. again, I think. <laughs> Not that I would necessarily bring back the conditions that brought about peak bonds, but I would like to see that level of dominance knowing what I know now. I think I could probably appreciate it more and if we had Pitch FX and Statcast. That's another thing that. Yeah. You know, how fast I, did Bob did Bob Feller throw? Right. Settle the who threw the fastest fastball debate forever, and there's a lot you could do with the technology we have today. Yeah. The other thing, and then mm-hmm. we can move on to the interviews. Like, there's. I feel like there's a whole lost generation in my baseball knowledge because, like, so I started following baseball when I was six years old in 1993. And then I feel like I came of eight, like I spent the next decade just reading everything I could and and watching the Phillies on TV all the time. And I came of age when my aunt bought me the new Bill James historical baseball abstract for Christmas when I was, Uh I was about 15. And then I blew straight through that. And that was sort of the birth of me as the adult baseball fan but like during those formative years everybody sort of took for granted that you knew about baseball in the 1980s Uh and i just you know i don't really have a conception of anything past like i don't know like the big red machine maybe from like that was when stuff was old enough to be historical but (laughs) like i couldn't name the the lineup of the you know the mid 80s cardinals the way i could the early 1970s reds so you know, you can go back and read, but you don't really get the sense of it because people weren't writing history style books of it back in those days. Right. And many people would argue that 1980s baseball was the best baseball. I would argue that so, too. Like it's like, yeah. I, I think about what I want for baseball and that's, you know, a lot of stealing, a lot of high contact, a premium on athleticism, you know, maybe take out the cocaine a little bit. And I think uh-huh. I would have enjoyed 80s baseball quite a bit. I agree. Okay, so later in this episode, we are going to talk to Will Ahmed, who is the CEO of Whoop, a company that makes a wearable fitness sensor and just completed a study with many minor leaguers and is going to come on to tell us about what they learned from this study. But before that, we are going to have a quick mini Grantland reunion. So we are welcoming on our good friend, Jonah Carey. Hey, Jonah. I like reunions. Also, the (laughs) slogan of his company, I mean, look, it's very simple. You get a big multi-million dollar campaign you look squarely into the camera <laughs> and you say whoop it's almost too obvious too obvious so we wanted to talk to you just because we like talking to you but also because this is the last time that we'll talk to you before 
Tim Raines' final appearance on the Hall of Fame ballot. You have some vested interest in the outcome of this of this election, and so in the, been... you you've gone on network television, looked into the camera, and threatened people if they didn't vote for for Tim Raines. Like let's let's say what actually happened. You've been stumping for Raines for years now. He is your favorite player from childhood. You have had him on your podcast. You have talked to him many times. You are pulling hard for him. And I have to say that just eyeballing the public ballot tracker, which is, you know, still only less than 15% of the eventual ballots that will be filed, but Reigns is doing pretty well. So are you allowing yourself to be optimistic yet? I am optimistic. And the thing that makes me optimistic is credit to Ryan Thibodeau, who does a great job of tracking the ballots. Uh, What he basically found, he looks at when ballots flip and so Reigns needs 20 ballots to flip compared to last year in order to get on, uh, to get in, uh, assuming that everything else holds court. And as of now, nine of 20 have been achieved and we're about one eighth of the way through the entire electorate. Um, it does get a little dicey toward the back end because you've got notoriously people who submit their ballots late or especially anonymously are uh, less progressive, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. But um, th- those people have already not voted for rain. So it's not even so much, you know, that as it is just if you had people who are holdouts, what's going to happen uh, next year? And just to give you one example, I mean, I don't want to go too far into this. Let's say that I've swayed quite a few people uh, through emails <laughs> or whatever. And I'm, I don't want to take too much credit because it's Reigns' career. I'm literally just some schmuck who played one year of Little League and whatever. But I've, I've pestered people and it seems to be having some effect. One person, which is really interesting, I don't think I'm going to call this person out by name, but I took him out for lunch, I don't know, six years ago (laughs) or something like that, a long time ago, uh, because we were sort of striking up a a professional relationship. And I said, hey, you know, you should vote for Tim Raines. Here's why. And he thanked me for lunch and has not voted for Tim Raines. (laughs) And and now in Raines' final year on the ballot, for the first time, this person cast a vote for Reigns. I don't think it's because of me, because he obviously ignored me for five years. I think that it's a combination of being pestered and also the fact that it's his last time on the ballot. There definitely is a little bit of a sympathy vote that happens, and I think you're seeing that among uh, a few people now. I hope you can expense all of these, <laughs> all <of> these <laughs> lunches to the Tim Reigns Fund or something. You are going door to door, it sounds like. I'm pretty much doing that, yes. What have you found to be the most effective way to change someone's mind? Is it a highlight reel? Is it that? Is it stats? Is it just some sort of convincing fun fact that you have found? What's the best way? There's only one reason Tim Raines is not in the Hall of Fame, and it's because he doesn't have 3,000 hits. Everything else would be moved. Cocaine, him playing in Montreal, these are all red herrings. If if he had 3,000 hits, it'd be a no-brainer. Lou Brock was a no-brainer because of 3,000 hits and uh, and the stolen bases. We don't have to go through this again, but obviously Reigns had a better career statistically than Lou Brock by pretty much every measure except hits. And he walked 1,330 times. And the preposterous example that I like to give is if you take 600 of his walks – because he came up about 400 hits short of 3,000. Take 600 walks, make uh, 400 of them bunt singles, and 200 of them triple plays, he would be in the Hall of Fame. This is an obviously ludicrous thought exercise, uh, but he would be in the Hall of Fame. And he would also be a vastly inferior player, obviously, if he hit the 200 triple plays and replaced 400 walks with singles. But that's how we work. And the reason that's how we work is because it's it's hard when we don't have guidelines for things, right? Like, what is the objective standard of the Hall of Fame? This is why I like Jay Jaffe's Jaws measure so much. It's because it it says, here are all the Hall of Famers ever. Here's the line. Here's the typical line by which a guy gets over or under or whatever. And so if you're better than that line, then you should be in the Hall of Fame. And if you're not, then you're not. And you find some surprising things. Leave aside Reigns for a second. Larry Walker all of a sudden becomes not just a Hall of Famer, but he actually raises the bar slightly for Hall of Famers if you're just looking at right fielders who are in. So I really like that. But that can be an abstract concept. Jaws depends uh, on war. People don't always like war. And so, you know, I don't try to go that way with people. I don't try to say, well, he's better than the average Hall of Famer because they'll say according to what. I just say I use the 3,000 hits exercise and they say, oh, I, I guess that makes sense. And, and the thing, and moreover, it's not just the 3,000 hits. I say that he reached base more than Roberto Clemente, Tony Gwynn, Harmon Killebrew, Eddie Matthews, Mike Schmidt, Roberto Alomar, uh, Lou Brock, and a whole bunch of other people. And they say – oh, okay, those guys are all really good. Roberto Clemente is really good. Uh, Tony Gwynn's really good. And you're telling me that he also stole 808 bases with the highest percentage success rate in the history of baseball for anybody with more than 400 attempts. All right, I can sink my teeth into that. 
So I want to circle back to Walker a little bit because he's the out of everybody on this ballot. He's the guy who I find myself personally rating higher than uh, he seems to be uh, getting, you know, than the love he seems to be getting on the ballot. He was in the teens last year, I think, and probably has next to no chance of making the Hall of Fame. But if you look at the the stats, whether it's Jaws or War or OPS or anything like that, he's got a better better case than, you know, Edgar Martinez or Reigns or Vladimir Guerrero. I was getting into it uh, with a couple people the other day when I said I'd vote for Walker over Guerrero if I had a, a vote. And they were like, this is preposterous. So, you know, can do you have a back of the napkin case for, for Walker as well? Um, so first of all, I agree with you about Walker versus Guerrero. And in fact, I just wrote my uh, Hall of Fame column this past Friday uh, for CBS Sports and Guerrero was the guy who got le- left off. It was actually, in fact, Walker wasn't even 10th on my ballot. That was Manny. It was Manny over Guerrero. And and uh, and that was uh, a tough one because you've got the other stuff with Manny. Depends how much you want to count it or not. I think that it's I, I think it's a reasonable argument to argue that somebody who actually failed drug tests, yeah. uh, you know, like if you're going to do a tiebreaker and you've got two very similar players, you could go that way. I chose Manny anyway because I'm just a stats loving robot. But um, I, I totally get the argument. But, yeah, the thing about Walker, again, no matter how statistically inclined you are as a person, there's a little bit of a, does this guy feel like a Hall of Famer? And what are the disqualifying factors? You sort of, we, we just look for those factors. It's just how it goes. It's how the human brain works, right? And so Walker played all those years for Colorado. So we cannot accept the fact that a hitter who played for the Rockies can be a Hall of Famer. We just can't. But the thing is that we have tools that adjust for this. We have, you know, OPS plus or WRC plus or pick your favorite. You can adjust for park. You can adjust for era. You know, to some extent, you could try to start to adjust for more granular things as we go along with statistical analysis. So we know all these things. So, yeah, you know, take as many home runs or walks or singles or whatever as you want, and you could adjust and you could still find that he's a great player. And the thing that gets me is, you know, his offensive numbers are right there with the Mannies and the Guerreros and all those guys. But he was such a good five-tool player. I think people lose sight of that. There's a little bit of that. Uh, gosh, I can remember that with a lot of players. I think Andre, I mean, these are all expos, I guess, but Andre Dawson was a gold glove center fielder for a decade before he became just kind of, you know, the big sort of plotting slugger that he was for the Cubs and for some other teams. And I think Walker, you know, he's perceived as injury prone and fragile. And I don't know how athletic he is. Go talk to anybody that he played with for the first six, seven, eight, nine years of his career. They will tell you that he's the most athletic player that they played with. I mean, he played, you know, coming up, he played with Marquise Grissom and Delano DeShields and Moise Salou and these spectacular athletes. And all of them, all of them say that Walker was better than any of them, uh, just in terms of every facet of the game and for being just athletically gifted. He was a, he had great range. He had a great arm. He ran the bases really well, was also a smart base runner, uh, you know, just did all of those things. And so, you know, the same way that when we're looking at MVP, if we say Mike Trout versus Miguel Cabrera, well, you know, Miguel Cabrera had five more home runs. Okay, but Mike Trout is a gold glove center fielder and steals a bunch of bases and does all these other things well. Well, that's Walker to some extent. Not necessarily quite as good as Trout, but just did everything well in addition to being a devastating hitter once you adjust for Coors Field. So, yeah, I'm totally comfortable voting for him for Hall of Fame. So over time, I've found myself caring less and less, I think, about the outcome of MVP awards or end-of-season awards or even Hall of Fame inductions because, you know, the stats are out there and I form my own opinions and I think certain guys deserve to be in or at least meet the baseline for inclusion. And if other writers disagree, then it doesn't change my opinion of the player. It doesn't change his career, et cetera. So I've become more zen about it, but you have gotten to know through your advocacy for him and Mm -hmm. also through writing a book about the Expos. And I assume that you now see what it would mean to him to get in. And so maybe that sort of dispassionate, logical thinking doesn't work anymore. And now now that you've gotten to know him, you can see the sort of emotional effect it, it has on the candidate. Well, you can flip it on its head, right? I'm sure Jack Morris and his family wanted to get into the Hall of Fame too. So it has to be. And you could take it to the ludicrous level. You could say that Jose Okendo should would have loved to have been in the Hall of Fame. I mean, whatever. You could pick your player. So I think that there has to be that underpinning of, of worthiness. But mm-hmm. once you've arrived at that point, once you've established that Reigns or Mike Messina or Edgar Martinez or whoever your you know kind of dark horse candidate is, it, once you've established that they have the goods to get in, then that's the point at which I start to get uh, on that side. And yeah, you know, by all accounts, I mean, I've had some interactions with him. I, I guess you could say that we're probably friends at this point. But if you talk to, you know, Dawson, who's his best friend in the world, I mean, the guy will live and die with Reigns. If you talk to people who, 
you know, maybe have less of a vested interest. They play two years with him or they manage him or whatever. They will all sing his praises as this great dude and, and all that stuff. And, and so I think that there's a little bit of that. And then you do get into family things. You know, he's got six-year-old twins. I've got seven-year-old twins. It's very difficult not to relate. You know, if there was some and I, I have done nothing remotely to earn any kind of recognition from anybody. I don't win awards. But if there was some way by which I were to win an award or be eligible for an award, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. But it'd be like, well, my kids get to come to this thing and share in this thing with me. That's great. You know, so I, I recognize that him, his dad, his siblings. Uh, you know, of course, he was the father of, of a guy who played in the big leagues himself who's kind of like a generation older he basically remarried and started a new family i mean all that's really cool so yeah you know i i think that some of that definitely exists but again you have to have uh the credentials i wouldn't just put this up if it was just any guy i mean it has to be there and, and once you've established intellectually that it's there then i think it's okay to move on to the next and by the way i should add i'm starting to get emails now you know we're, we're winding down we're almost at the end of this year so these this balloting is going to be over i've got musina for hall of fame people i've got edgar for hall of fame people emailing me and saying Hey man, like it seems like you affected a little bit of change with Reigns. Can you jump on this bandwagon? And my answer to them is probably won't do it because it's a lot of effort and a lot of free time that I don't really have. So I will write about, I mean, I'll write, you know, articles about Mucina and Edgar and all these guys who deserve to be in it. But I think this is sort of my life, even for X Expos, I don't think I'm going to do this for Vlad or Walker or whatever. I think this is kind of my last stand when it comes to full out advocacy. I feel a little like it's weird. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with self promotion, I'm a very, you know, outgoing kind of guy. But it, it does feel a little strange. Like, I really don't – this is about Reigns and not about me. And so if Mike Messina gets more votes, I don't want it to be, oh, like, you know, th this is the reason. I want it to be Mike Messina was just badass and that's why. There's a, a debate in addition to the, the worthiness of individual players that's sort of gotten lost now that there are, the ballot is so backlogged after the, the PED era. But do you find yourself as a, a big hall guy or a small hall guy or where in between? I am a Jay Jaffe Hall guy. Literally. Jaws is, my, Jaws is my Bible. It's the first time I've seen an objective measure of what's what. Now, you know, you could you could go down the road a little bit because there's got like Frankie Frisch was on the uh, Veterans Committee for years and voted in all these dudes from the whatever 1931 Giants who are not that good, who tend to drag things down. But I mean, if you want to do it by math, you know, it's the median versus mean thing, right? If we're going to subtract you know, the Schmolios who got in because they had a couple good years in the 30s for the Giants, then we should probably just get rid of Babe Ruth, too. I mean, there's a little bit of a, you know, any extreme outlier on the scale uh, maybe shouldn't be looked at, and we should really pay attention to something approaching median. And I think once you do that, you know, you it's pretty easy to figure. You, you can also just do Jaws in its raw level, but if you want to get mathematical about it, once we strip out the most extreme examples, yeah, you know, we can pretty much establish where Mucina is, Kurt Schilling is, you know, guys like that. They're worthy. And, you know, one thing that gets me too is context. Like context is everything in life and journalism and in baseball and whatever. There's a few areas in which I think people fail miserably context. One is they look, they try to establish who's the best player of their era. Okay, so it's easy. So like, you know, assuming that steroids didn't exist or whatever, Barry Bonds is in and Roger Clemens is in, that's easy. But they'll look at, especially Mucina, they'll look at Mucina and they'll say, was Mucina ever anything better than the fifth best pitcher in Major League Baseball? And the answer is probably not. He also pitched in the same era as Roger Clemens and Greg Maddox, who are probably one, two all time. Maybe you can make the case for Lefty Grove and Walter Johnson, but they're right there in the best pitchers of all time. And Randy Johnson might be the best lefty of all time, him or Lefty Grove. It is a cosmic coincidence that Mike Mussina happened to pitch with Ruth, Ruth, and Ruth at the same time. That's basically it. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> and so we can't hold that against him. You know, he was better than a lot of dudes who pitched in the eight. He was much better than Jack Morris or, or Jimmy Key. Dave, I love Dave Steve, but he was a better pitcher than Dave Steve. It's just that demographically that's where he ended up. So I think that we need to keep that in mind and not hold it against or for anybody. We just say, how good is this guy historically? And the other context that I don't think people understand is they try to argue for relief pitchers. Dude, it is so stupid to vote for relief pitchers for the Hall of Fame. Relief pitchers are glorified pinch hitters. I'm sorry, but they are. That's how it is. <laughs> They're specialists. And, you know, you could be the best at something, but now we can get into extreme examples. Now Matt Stair should be in the Hall of Fame or Lenny Harris or whatever. Like, I really don't think that Trevor Hoffman makes a much more compelling case than the best situational hitter of all time. I just don't. You cannot affect the game that much when you pitch 75, 75 innings a year for 10 pitches or 12 pitches at a time typically the bases are empty and you're often up two or three or four runs like that's just not an argument for me and so just because the guy some guy is the best closer the second best closer the third best closer that's not it i look at the totality of things and i think that you can separate the best 
starting pitchers up against the best starting pitchers for Jaws, and you could do it for right field or second base or whatever, but it's just a totally different role to be a relief pitcher. They are not, you can't do a Jaws equivalent for that because they're automatically disqualified. Think about it this way. If you have Manny Ramirez in his prime, and you could get him for Trevor Hoffman in his prime, what kind of person doesn't trade for Manny Ramirez? Are you joking? What I mean, you know, you we could take this down several notches. What kind of person doesn't trade for like Luis Gonzalez in his prime versus Trevor Hoffman? Of course I want Luis Gonzalez. He had 50 home runs or whatever. Of course I want him. So I think that you have to be careful about, you know, understanding what we're really talking about. And, you know, the only exception that I'll make is Mariano. And Mariano is just such an exception because he was ridiculous for 20 years. And, you know, just when he was above, beyond the pale. But if we're talking relief only, so I disqualify Eckersley and Smoltz because those guys had, you know, decent to very good careers as starting pitchers. If you're talking relief pitcher only, the only guy that I want in the Hall of Fame is Mariano Rivera. And I, I mean, I never say never, but it would be unlikely that I would change my mind for the next several decades. Not Hoffman, not Smith, not Wagner, not any of that stuff. Uh, yeah. I feel like if you're really committed to that, you'd fight against Rivera too. I'm not sure that I would vote for Rivera, but let's be clear. I, ha- I mean, I need to really scrutinize his candidacy, uh, but I'm not. it's not an automatic vote for sure, which I think automatically puts me in the in the uh, minority because I think he might get 99 or 100% of the vote. And the only reason I'm considering him is because he is an extreme exception. It's the same way that I, you know, I don't love the idea of voting for DHs, but obviously uh, Edgar was so good, you know, that you have to consider him. But like, you know, Harold Baines has some pretty solid numbers but he didn't play the field and he didn't contribute so i wouldn't vote for him that kind of thing all right well i think if reigns were not to make it somehow i think he'd probably be the best player who's not in right other than people who aren't in for non-performance related reasons just peds gambling whatever it is throwing games or people who are still on the ballot maybe you could make a case for alan trammell bobby gritch someone has to be the best player who's not in the hall of fame but i don't think you should draw that line at Tim Raines. So the odds that someone listening is a voter and is still undecided and has, <laughs> hasn't has heard you make this plea elsewhere and hasn't been taken to lunch by you are uh, pretty You don't know who remote. listens to this podcast. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but are there any last words before we let you go? Any final impassioned plea you want to make to that hypothetical person? You know, I feel like the case has been made and, and, <laughs> and I, yeah, I want to tell you, it's funny. There's a very much a push pull. I said it before, but like, I'm very mascotish in how I am as a writer and as a personality on social media or whatever. I'm always enthusiastic and this, that, or the other, but you know, it's just like, I really care about this cause. And I understand that I could care about like, you know, trade routes in the South China sea or cancer or 10,000 other things, but we can only do what we can do with our own little corner of earth. And this is the thing that I happen to care about right now. Like the guy deserves to be in, it's an infinitesimally small thing, but what the hell, man? Like, you know, if, if he's worthy, uh, then he's worthy. And if it happens and you're listening to this podcast and you're on the fence about it, you've never been to an induction ceremony, maybe you've never been to Cooperstown, come to Cooperstown. I am literally going to buy the Omegong Brewery because that's how many free beers I'm going to buy for people. <laughs> and let's just party. Like, it'll be fun. If you were with me with uh, when Pedro Martinez got in summer of 15, you know, I ended up crashing a Pedro Martinez party, which had, let's see, every first of all, it was black tie and, and me and nine friends all wearing Expos caps, cut off shorts and flip flops crashed this party. They were all wearing suits or gowns. Duke Dan Duquette was there. Every Red Sox person was there. It was a Red Sox party. The commissioner of baseball was there, and we were there. And I've told this story before, but I don't care. I'm going to tell it again. And, uh, you know, we're there, we're re- and we immediately realized we made a mistake. The Red Sox PR lady comes over and chastises me and says, what are you doing? She kind of had given me permission to go by myself, but respectfully and not showing up, uh, having had a couple with, with my friends. And I'm feeling a little bad about it. And Pedro's giving a speech. And uh, everybody's gathered. It's, all, it's, it's mostly his family. It's all Red Sox people. Everybody's dressed to the nines. And uh, we're standing maybe 15 or 25, 20 feet behind everybody else. And Pedro stops mid-sentence and points at one of my buddies wearing a vintage rusty style Expos jersey and goes, Bienvenue, mes amis! And invites us over <laughs> to come party with him. And then we pose for selfies with him and did shots with him or whatever. That's what Cooperstown is all about. If you go... Uh, and by the way, if you're a Bagwell supporter or Trevor Hoffman or whoever else might get in, uh, it's fun. And and there aren't that many opportunities to do that kind of thing in that bucolic setting. And it, it really is cool. If you like baseball, uh, it's definitely worth the trip. And if Reigns gets in and you see me in Cooperstown, it'll really, really be worth the trip. I promise. All right. I hope that happens. And I hope that if you do ever advocate for another player, it will be Messina because he was sort of my Reigns, I guess. A yeah. guy who I really liked growing up and, and watching at the time. 
All right, so I have to take a deep breath before I start listing all the places people can find you, but you uh, write a lot for CBS Sports, also for Sports Illustrated. You should listen to the Jonah Carey podcast at Nerdist and all of the other places you can find podcasts. You can hear him talk to Tim Raines and many other leading lights from the worlds of sports and entertainment. Of course, you can hear him and see him on the Jonah Carey show at CBS Sports, too, and you can also read his books, The Extra 2% and Up, Up, and Away. Jonah, thank you very much. And congrats to you guys. The Ringer is awesome, and I'm so happy that it's been able to uh, take off the way that it has and that you guys are still working with so many of those great people. And Michael, you in particular, uh, from starting in the blogging world to going to Grantland to where you are now, like you're kicking ass, man. And uh, and I'm proud of both of you guys and happy for both of you guys. Thank you. Thanks. That's... I'm getting a little choked up over here. Okay. All right. We better end the segment before we break into tears. All right. Good talking to you, Jonah. Cheers, fellas. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, and we will be back with Will Ahmed, the CEO of Whoop. We'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, TuneIn. The Ringer Podcast Network is now available on TuneIn. And while you can listen to every episode on the TuneIn audio app for free, TuneIn is giving listeners 20% off its premium subscription for a limited time. You can catch the home calls of your favorite sports team at home or on the road. That's every play, every team, every game. If you love sports, you'll love TuneIn Premium. Plus, with TuneIn Premium, not only will you get to hear your favorite sports teams live, you'll also get to hear great commercial-free music from around the world and unlimited access to every audiobook in the library live or on demand. So go to TuneIn.com forward slash The Ringer to get TuneIn Premium at 20% off. Download the TuneIn app and subscribe today. All right, so we are joined now by Will Ahmed, who is the CEO of Whoop, the makers of a fitness wearable, which has just released some findings from a large-scale study of professional baseball players, minor leaguers. Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. So first, can you give us a sense of the mechanics of this study? Were you hoping to do a league-wide study and had to sort of settle for a, a survey of some organizations that were willing? How many players took part and what shape did their participation take? Yeah, so just some background, Ben. Uh, Whoop is a, a system designed to os- optimize performance for elite athletes and teams. We work with professional athletes, collegiate athletes, Olympians, folks in the military. We just announced a product available to the public. And really, it's a system across hardware, software, and analytics designed to really optimize performance. And in the process of meeting with various professional teams, uh, we got to know a number of teams in Major League Baseball, and they reached out to the head office of Major League Baseball saying, hey, do you know anything about Whoop and its technology? And so we found ourselves meeting a fair amount with Major League Baseball, and Major League Baseball really wanted to make an investment into better understanding player health and thinking about, you know, what are ways that we can learn more about the travel schedule or about, you know, various rigors associated with being a professional athlete. And so I think they deemed WHOOP uh, as having the most powerful technology targeting athletes. And, uh, and we partnered, and it was really actually supposed to be only um, one or two teams. And uh, it ended up snowballing where we had nine organizations, uh, which included 28 different Uh, locations across the United States. So within uh, minor league baseball, it was 230 athletes. uh, And again, it was really the largest performance study ever conducted by a pro sports league. What was sort of the the goal of this? Was this just sort of a a test run to see that you could collect and and sort of analyze all this data at once? Or were you trying to make this data available for teams or maybe other researchers to draw their own conclusions from it? You know, we view our role as technologists to provide the most accurate and uh, insightful data that we can. And we wanted to look at how things like sleep and recovery and strain overall affected athletes' lives throughout the course of of playing a season. And so uh, by working with minor league athletes across a number of different locations, we got to look at things like how recovery actually affected in-game play or how the away teams travel uh, might affect their sleep or their recovery, 
versus, say, the home team, or, you know, ultimately understanding different positions and how different positions may recover differently. So there were really a number of interesting findings, and I think part of what Major League Baseball was excited to, to see through the study was that the players themselves were really interested in the technology, in wearing the product, and in better understanding their bodies. So can you define recovery as it's measured by WHOOP? What sort of metrics is that based on and what might it be missing, if anything? Yeah, I would say recovery is probably the single most important thing that we've introduced to athletes. It's a score from a zero from zero to 100 percent that is a predictor of how prepared your body is for strain or how ready your body is to perform. And uh, the hardware itself is measuring five sensors 100 times a second. And probably the most important thing that goes into this uh, calculation of recovery is heart rate variability, which we're one of the first companies to be able to accurately monitor from the wrist, um, and really the only company to monitor continuously. So by having a deep understanding of your physiology, especially while you're sleeping, we can tell an athlete every morning how recovered he or she is. And that information can also be shared with a coach or a trainer who needs to think about how to train that athlete. So as a result, you've got athletes being trained on an individual basis or a personalized basis rather than um, just based on what the entire team for a specific day is supposed to do. And could you go into a little more detail about what exactly heart rate variability means, how it affects the the athlete uh, physiologically? Yeah, so heart rate variability is the amount of variance in between consecutive beats of the heart. So said differently, the more variance in your heart rate, the healthier your heart. And this is a little counterintuitive, but if your heart's beating at 60 beats per second, it's not beating every second. So it might be like 1.2 seconds or 0.8 seconds. And actually, the more variability, the healthier your heart. And it's this lens into your autonomic nervous system, which consists of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. And you want sympathetic and parasympathetic to always be in balance. And when they're in balance, uh, you, you ultimately have a, a more rested, healthier state of being. And so we're able to measure this phenomenon while someone's sleeping. And can you tell us, as far as you know, I mean, how was this sort of presented to the players? Did that vary by team? Did the level of participation vary by team? Did the players express any concerns, perhaps, about wearing this? I assume they wore it, what, at, at all times when they weren't on the field? Was that the idea? Yeah, so we saw very high engagement from the athletes, which is obviously an important thing to see for any wearable technology, but also in the, in the case of a voluntary study. You need data in order to be able to uh, to analyze what's going on. And we saw 70% of the athletes were daily active users. So in the technology world, that's, that's really high. Uh, so they were collecting data every day. And as a result, we got, uh, you know, very interesting statistics around uh, the rigors of a season. And uh, to, to your other question, you know, the, the athletes were actually able to look at the data on their phones or on their tablets. So they were able to manage the data themselves. And then the, the teams and the coaches and the trainers were also able to access uh, the data, whether it be on their phones or on a desktop. Did you approach Major League Baseball with the idea of tracking major leaguers first, or was the plan always to test this out on minor leaguers? We wanted to roll it out at the minor league level just so that everyone was comfortable with it. You know, we've spent a lot of time here at Whoop really thinking about privacy and data security and ownership, and we do a lot to enable our partners to structure data in any way that they would like or whatever makes them comfortable. And so for us, when we roll technology out, especially that's collecting data that's valuable and sensitive, it's important to us that the clients that we're working with feel comfortable about what they're monitoring. And uh, in the case of Major League Baseball, I think it was an important first step that we demonstrated, you know, one, that athletes were comfortable wearing the product continuously, two, that coaches and trainers saw value in the data, and three, that on a macro aggregate level, you could learn a lot about, about the, the life of a baseball player. 
And is there any potential for players to sort of skew the results by selectively wearing one of these devices? You know, as long as it's voluntary, say you know you're going out drinking or, you know, you're not going to get enough sleep tonight and you don't want your results to show your team that you are drinking or that you're not getting enough sleep. So can you just, you know, wear it when you're being good and take it off when you're behaving badly? Well, yes and no. I think that, uh, you know, your body has a memory, right? So that's, that's one advantage that you have in terms of monitoring any period of time about the body. So, for example, if, uh, if you go out drinking tonight and you don't wear a whoop but you put it on tomorrow, there's going to be things about your readouts that suggest that you're hungover. Uh-huh. So, you know, there is like a memory, so to speak, of, of your body's physiology, uh, and that's a hard thing to fake. Now, if you took it off for a week because you know, you were, you were doing something for a week or, you know, you were nervous about data for a week, yeah, it'd be hard to recover that data. But what we saw, again, from the study was was that the players, close to 70% of the time, were wearing it uh, continuously every day. So what we tend to see is athletes just are wearing it all the time and therefore getting the feedback. And I wanted to circle back to something you said a couple minutes ago about how the recovery metric allows coaches or trainers to tailor workouts based on each individual person's recovery. Is there anything taken into account in terms of the physiological differences from one player to another? Like, is recovery something that is sort of generalized and might the factors that go into recovery might manifest themselves different ways in different people? That's a good question. So the way actually the recovery is calculated is based on your own personal baselines. So, for example, your raw data actually isn't as important um, as knowing what it looks like relative to who you are and your baseline information. So we don't compare, you know, Johnny got seven hours of sleep and Bobby got eight hours of sleep, so Bobby's more recovered. We look at how a reading like that might compare to what we normally see for Johnny or Bobby, right? And we do this also on a physiological level, which is looking at things like heart rate variability. So heart rate variability is a very personalized statistic And we actually go to the lengths of looking at your measurement this morning relative to your measurement the last three days, the last seven days, and even the last 30 days. So it becomes very calibrated to you. And as a result, the recovery that we're telling an individual is personalized to them. Now, there's a separate question, which is more around, you know, mental fortitude and and sort of um, your ability to persevere when your body's run down. And in that case, I think that you may see athletes who are more capable at different levels of recovery than other athletes. So, you know, you may always have the Jordan flu game, you know, even though Michael Jordan on that day would have had an incredibly low recovery, right? So it's, it's again, an additional layer of information that can just make a coach or a trainer that much more effective in doing their job so that you get to a place where you know if a certain athlete is at a certain level, it would be more effective for them to scale things back than do the same workout as the rest of their teammates. And how thin are the margins that you're able to work with? I, you know, I was reading some of the literature about about the device, and it was talking about how position players had an average heart rate of like 53 beats per minute and pitchers 52. And you know that's less than a 2% difference. Like, Does that it was a significant enough difference to to make it in the brochure. So, like, is that level of variation uh, enough to impact a, a workout program or anything like that? Yeah, so I think in that case, we probably included the statistic to demonstrate that they were really close so that all actually all the players by position had very similar resting heart rates. I wouldn't say that if someone had a 52 or someone had a 53, that that was a meaningful difference. However, if you looked at their heart rate variabilities, Uh, infielders, outfielders, and pitchers, what you saw is that pitchers had a much higher heart rate variability. And that would suggest that they were either getting more rest over the course uh, of the study or that they were cardiovascularly fitter. Um, And so that uh, was a difference of 92 milliseconds versus, I think, 73 milliseconds um, in the case of infielders. So that, you know, is a meaningful difference that we would say, you know, indicates something of rest or, or fitness. And you found some correlation between recovery and fastball velocity and between recovery and exit velocity for hitters. 
Can you give us any sense of the magnitude of those effects? You know, like if a if a guy is a hundred percent when he's at his peak recovery, you know, if he if he goes sleepless for a night, like how how much worse should you expect him to be? I mean, I mean, it's probably too soon to to say for sure, but how much does it suggest that players sort of true talent varies from day to day based on how prepared they are for a given game? There's no question that a player's performance varies day to day um, based on their state of being or their physiology. The degree to which I think is something that is going to require further research. What we've seen with the MLB study is that across the board, like with no outliers, if an athlete had a lower recovery versus a higher recovery, they threw faster uh, fastballs. And if a, an athlete had a lower recovery versus a higher recovery, they had uh, they they had better exit bat velocity, right? So higher recovery led to better uh, letter performance. And and again, you know, we'd love to see uh, more data on this, but this was the largest performance study ever conducted. So you got to start somewhere. And um, and we see those correlations permeating throughout the study. And then we also see it with all the other teams that we work with as well. I mean, we do work with clients across every professional sports league, college teams across every conference. We worked with about 30 Olympians headed into Rio. So we we do collect a lot of data around physiology and performance. And I mean, there's a number of examples that I can give you. Like we've seen if an athlete has a higher recovery um, in cross country field, then they're they're more likely to uh, have faster time trials. If they have a higher recovery in swimming, they're more likely to have faster time trials within NC2A. Higher recovery correlates directly with free throw percentage in NC2A athletes and a number of NBA players. We actually have we have an NBA player on our platform who, when he has a low recovery, his stat line is like 18 points, 35% field goal percentage, and eight turnovers. And when he has a high recovery, it's 22 points per night, 52% field goal percentage, and one turnover. So you look at that athlete, you know, virtually completely different athletes, whether, whether he has a, a low recovery or a high recovery. The low recovery athlete is maybe coming off the bench on a good team, and, uh, and the high recovery athlete, you know, is, uh, is you know, first team all-star. So it's very interesting, I think, just for athletes to start thinking about how recovery plays a role in their performance. And as a result, you get athletes thinking about themselves um, on a 24-7 basis. How can I be competing in everything that I do? And do you expect the utility of this information to be lower in baseball than it might be in some sports that depend more directly on cardiovascular fitness? You know, if you're running the entire time and conditioning is a huge part of it, not that that's not important in baseball, but maybe it takes on a lesser importance. Do you think there are just as many applications in baseball as compared to other sports? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that there's the interesting thing about heart rate variability is uh, is how much medical literature there is around it as being a predictor in a lot of different walks of life. And the original research was done on Olympic power lifters. So, you know, that's not a very cardiovascular sport, but you have someone who would lift really high weight. And then the next day, if they had a low heart rate variability, they would take the day off hoping that the following day they would have an even higher heart rate variability and therefore be able to lift more than two days earlier. So, you know, uh, a lot of this research has been done in other areas. And I think you'll see it in skill, you know, sports that are largely skill-based as well. Like, uh, you know, we're starting to work with some very elite golfers, and I think it'll be interesting to look at, you know, score performance or, or putting perhaps alongside uh, recovery. We're looking at, uh, you know, pit crew teams and NASCAR. So, you know, we're, I would say there's a lot of different areas within sports that I think will benefit from uh, recovery analysis. What kind of user feedback on how intrusive this is to, to wear, you know, how intimidating this could feel a little big brother to an athlete, you know, in, in terms of that kind of feedback, what have you gotten back from athletes and is that causing you to change anything from the way you pitch it to athletes to the technology itself? It's a really important part in the process, you know, talking about uh, privacy and my belief is that privacy is like the furthest thing from binary. 
right? Everyone sort of just thinks, oh, either someone's seeing all my data or none of it. And we've actually built 27 different layers of privacy in terms of what information can be shared or not shared. And what that does is it allows you to create a comfortable relationship between a coach and a trainer who, you know, really have the best interest in mind, I think, for the athlete. And the athlete who also probably needs to understand their body better than anyone else because, you know, this is their, their careers and their livelihood that they're playing for. So I think being really smart about levels of privacy and making and being transparent about what information is shared is really important. And then also having functionality that allows you to offset some of the psychological effects. So, for example, athletes on the day of games or events actually don't like to see their recovery because there's a psychological effect and they just want to assume that they have a high recovery, right? So we actually built a feature that allows them to hide their recoveries on specific days so that they can still collect the data. Their coach or trainer may or may not even be able to see that data, but it won't affect them psychologically as they go into their performance. And so a number of the summary findings you have here are just sort of things that we would have thought would be the case, right? And and this is kind of a, a first study of this size, so it seems fine to make sure it matches up with the conventional wisdom or check the conventional wisdom. So what would the next step be, both in terms of the actual study? Do you want to do this with more teams, more players? Do you have any plans to do that? And applications of the information or deeper more multi-layered studies that you want to conduct in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that's important to remember, right, is that when you find things that, you know, meet conventional wisdom, that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't valuable to measure. Often it's it's actually the opposite. So, you know, we could all sit here and say that um, we know that a, a player who, you know, uh, has more hits than another player is a more valuable player. So as a result, you don't actually need to measure hits, right? I don't think anyone would say that. Everyone would say, oh, well, we have to measure hits because we now know it's, we know it's so important. And I think a little bit of what this data presents is, okay, well, wow, we see like how much less athletes are sleeping when they're traveling, or we see how much lower their recovery is when they're not hitting well, or we see how low their recovery is uh, when they have an away game okay, well, we really need to monitor recovery in order to action around it, right? At the end of the day, you manage what you measure. And so I think by what this data really supports is the importance of player monitoring, where you work with athletes to better understand their bodies. And then what comes in, in, in the, you know, over time in terms of collecting a lot of data is you get a lot smarter and you start to optimize things. So I think one Example is looking at, are there different travel schedules? Are there different routes? Um, are there different layovers that actually help the traveling team get more sleep, not less, right? Um, I think there's a lot to do with how uh, pitchers actually recover and understanding, for example, perhaps a real-time recovery analysis around uh, in-game or uh, warming up or, you know, even just think about the World Series and, and how interesting it might have been in those, you know, final three games to have some readings on the athletes to really optimize their play. So I think that what we'll see with this data is that it'll become part of the conversation for athletes. It'll become part of the conversation for coaches. And it'll be used in ways to really help the athlete and I think also help the team win. And what you'll also see in the process is athletes having much longer careers, much healthier careers. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we appreciate all the information. This is obviously a, a brave new world for wearable technology in, in all sports, but in baseball in particular. And so this is going to be a, a bigger and bigger part of the game in one form or another. So you can find out more about Whoop at its website, whoop.com. And Will, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So that will do it for this episode, and that will do it for this year. This is our last oh, wow. podcast of 2016. We will be back with another episode right after the new year. But thanks to everyone for listening in our inaugural year as a podcast. If you want to give us a gift, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Or but... you can get us a literal gift. <laughs> <laughs> you could. You could. But uh, ratings and reviews are free. We will be back soon and hope you have a happy holidays and we'll talk to you in 2017.